Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, on the eve of the new Irish public holiday, we're looking at the life, legacy and legend of St. Bridget. And we'll be finding out how she became one of the patron saints of Ireland and how from this year on has a public holiday in her honour. You can email us your thoughts and views to talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we looked at the life and legacy of W.B. Yeats on this the centenary of him winning the Nobel Prize for Literature and we explored his relationship with the occult and his later politics. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on St. Bridget. This year we have a new public holiday in Ireland on the first Monday of every February, unless the first of February, the Feast of St. Bridget, falls on a Friday, in which case that will be the holiday. The story of St. Bridget is of a 5th century woman who maintains a sacred fire by the monastery she founded in Kildare, performed many miracles and who later became one of Ireland's three patron saints alongside St. Patrick and St. Columkill. There is also the goddess Bridget, who is believed to have predated Christianity going all the way back to the Celtic festival of Imbolc and who was a triple goddess of healing, of fire and of poetry. But which came first? So in tonight's show, we want to explore the life, the legend and the legacy of St. Bridget. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Mary Condren teaches at the Centre for Gender and Women's Studies at Trinity College Dublin and is the author of The Serpent and the Goddess, Women, Religion and Power in Celtic Ireland. And her articles include Bridget, Matron of Poetry, Healing, Smithwork and Mercy. And she organised the recent Bridget of Ireland, an Icon for Today conference held at Trinity College Dublin in January. Dr. Edel Brannock is an adjunct professor in the School of History at UCC and is the former CEO of the Discovery Project and she spoke at the Bridget of Ireland conference. Dr. Neve Witcherly lectures in the Department of Early Irish at Maynooth University and is an expert on the early church, including the cult of the saint and the cult of relics. And she's the author of The Cult of Relics in Early Medieval Ireland and has written about St. Bridget for the journal and elsewhere. Laura Murphy is the poet in residence at Her Story, a movement which tells the story of modern, historic and mythic women and which spearheaded the campaign to make Bridget's Day Ireland's new public holiday. Well, you are all very welcome. And Laura, I might begin with you and I might begin with how excited you're feeling that Ireland finally has a national public holiday in honour and named after a woman. It's surreal, to be honest. Uh, yeah, we've been working on this in, in the background for three years, um, specifically on the campaign, but I suppose longer than that, uh, there's, there's been such a big group of women, women working towards this day. So it's um, it's it's quite the feat. And, and, and our campaign was a grassroots campaign. We, we didn't have any budget. Uh, it, was, it was basically built around this shared passion and understanding of the importance of Bridget as an archetype, a goddess, a woman and a saint and specifically her relevance to 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 life today you know patriarchy and capitalism has a lot to answer for and we're we're, we're basically heading on a road of destruction and what we in her story felt was that we really need to bring those qualities of the feminine back into our culture the qualities that were obliterated by patriarchy you know over 2000 years on these lands so we made it our mission to bring the voice of Bridget, however you relate to her, whether it's in a secular way, in a spiritual way, in an archetypal way, bring her voice back in, bring her story back in and have her as a symbol and a new way of living in the world so that we can actually bring healing and compassion and unity back into the into the consciousness again. And you wrote a poem inspired by it, Ishmisha Breed. I did, yeah. And... and, and 
The inspiration for that was how I live my life since 2013, since walking an ancient pilgrim path dedicated to Bridget, was by embodying her qualities. My biggest heroes are are Maud Gahn and Countess Markovich, Grace O'Malley. They were all inspired by Bridget. They managed to move mountains practically because of how they understood and related to Bridget. I wanted to emanate that and I wanted to do my bit to to do what I could to bring healing to society. So I said, OK, what do I do? I embody her qualities. And when I embody her qualities of inspiration and healing and compassion, that's when the imbus for Osnade, the the illuminated inspiration came for the poem. And that was basically my proclamation that I, as a woman of Ireland in the 21st century, I can embody Bridget. And the invitation for the listener is whether you're a male or female, whoever you are, that you can also embody the qualities of Bridget. And Mary, that's probably one of the great things about Bridget is that we are able to to take from the different stories and the different Bridgets that are there uh, what directly uh, inspires us and and resonates with us. But I think I've never maybe been more com- more confused about a subject either, given all the discussion about Bridget and all that's been written about her in the last week and more uh, in in the run up to this new public holiday. Because you know, as Laura has said, you know, there are these different. There's the saint. There's the goddess. There's this symbol and archetype. That there are many different Bridgets, and it's hard to maybe get a handle on all of them. Well, that's absolutely true. And can I just say that that's why Woman Spirit Ireland, we started celebrating the festivals of Bridget in the early 1990s um, and have done so now for 30 years. And the reason we began was in the context of the violence that had um, permeated Ireland for many years. And our aim was to bring women from all traditions, Protestant, Catholic, pagan, whoever, you know, whatever you're having yourself, um, and to develop language and, and body movements and occasions when all of those women could come together, focusing not on our differences, but on what we had in common. Now, that's the, um, that was the origin of our initial work with Bridget. But the, the question of, as to who she is um, is very complicated because I started my study on Bridget in the 1980s when I started a doctoral program looking at the, the written traditions, the manuscripts, and um, I left it aside because um, it, the, the whole question was too complicated um, only, if we only focused on the written traditions. In the work of Women's Spirit Ireland, we focus much more now today on the living traditions, which is to say the symbolism, the symbolism of her cloak, and the symbolism of the chris or the girdle, and the symbolism of the cross and some other symbols that I, that I won't go into right now. But the... The really important thing um, about that is that the when you focus on the symbolism uh, and not only on the on the living traditions, you then begin to see the um, the question of goddess or saint very differently, in the sense that um, the symbolisms are what we call in theological terms panentheistic. They focus primarily on energy. How do we regenerate the world through the cloak and through the chris and, and through the cross and by focusing on them. Um, and then you have a thing called henotheism, which is to say, you know, divinity is located in the places. Um, but when you come to polytheism, which is where most of the Irish saga material is, is um, located, um, number one, all female images of divinity, including Bridget, are denigrated and subjugated and ridiculed, and polytheistic goddesses become petrified, um, immovable, you know, located in stone. Um, and when you come to monotheism, um, as you know, I am the Lord thy God, and I can't bear any competitors or something to that effect, um, Bridget then can only become a saint which is not in any way to uh, minimize her, her effect, because she, did, she was a very, very powerful woman. But in, in my more recent research over the past so many years, um, I understand her power and her ongoing life in the world because she represents a tradition of female divinity um, and, and a, a tradition of female authority, which was rested not only in the the 5th century saint, but also in her successors, because, you know, we've discovered that 
in the reliquaries of Bridget, for instance, in Britain, um, the reliquaries are the, the, the documents that say what relics we used to have. Most of them disappeared during the Reformations. Um, there were something like 10 Bridget heads. There are her embroidery tools or her weaving tools. There are teeth, which, you know, which might speak of a kind of a shamanism. And there are many other relics that um, you know, deserve further investigation. And the other point about that is that these symbols and these relics are also common to many female figures of divinity around the world. And so what we're seeking is maybe developing a common language. The, the poet Adrian Rich once wrote a, a poem called The Dream of a Common Language. Um, and I think we might find that language primarily through the symbolism and through working with it, through it with our bodies um, and also informed by the written traditions, but not giving either one or the other priority. Fascinating stuff. Neve. you've got some wonderful connections to British yourself. You you made British crosses in school. You you took the name British for, uh, for your confirmation. Uh, you have written about British. You researched her, uh, for the, the, the writings about her uh, for your master's thesis, the relics for your PhD and for your book. Uh, and you've written so passionately and brilliantly about her for uh, the RTE website, for the journal and for other places that why is there such passion? Why is there? Why is this so significant and important? Well, I think Mary and Laura have touched on a lot of the great strengths um, of Bridget and why it's so fitting now that she has a new, you know, public holiday is going to be in her honour. She means so many different things to different people across the centuries. So, you know, as I said before, I find that very reassuring. It shows, you know, her longevity um, and the strength of her legacy. So kind of to me, I had to reflect what's kind of the most important part of Bridget to me. And as an early Irish historian, it's getting back to the real woman, you know, who would have walked the earth, the flesh and blood individual who was trying to function within this, what was a very difficult society um, in early medieval Ireland. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, scholars and even myself, you know, when I was younger and everything have kind of glided over this real, real woman and said, well, we don't really know if she kind of existed at all. Maybe we don't have a lot of evidence for her, but this is, you know, the cult of her as the saint and, you know, the maybe is there any connection um, with an earlier goddess and all of these kind of things. So I, but the... The thing about it when you really get into it is for this period in Irish history, we don't have a lot of hard evidence for a lot of people, right? So for the 5th and 6th century. And it's not until the 7th century that we really get any, you know, substantial amount of written sources. So in one sense, Bridget is as vague as the rest of the early church founders. But in the in another sense, the sources that we do have about Bridget, they are they all kind of concur on some of the kind of the big Kind of issues. So, for example, they all concur that she is from this family known as the Fahert. You know, this big kind of, I use the term family, but there was, you know, this kind of a large dynastic group with different branches uh, to the family, you know, and she's attributed to a specific branch of the Fahert. And, and is that in County Louth? Well, no. So it's around Leinster. So, you know, she's really connected with the Fahert are a Leinster people. That's very clear. Um, she's kind of particularly connected with a branch that's kind of more kind of closer to northwest Leinster and around Offaly. She's very clearly connected with Kildare, which is her, what to me is the best thing about Bridget, is that she, you know, that a woman uh, founded and was patron of one of the most powerful institutions in the country for a very, very, very long time, for centuries. Um, so she, you know, every all the early sources are very clear on that. So actually, she's not as elusive a figure, mm-hmm. I think, as we've kind of all been portraying her. You know, yeah. um, you know there was a lot of kind of hard evidence about her, actually. And when like I'm doing a big project at the moment uh, on Finian and Clonard, and, you know, she's... She's a lot kind of she's a lot more firmer a firmer grasp of Bridget in history, you know, kind of than I do of Finian and Clonard. So, so really, I think she's been kind of done an injustice over the years um, by kind of dismissing the real woman who achieved unbelievable feats, if we're honest, right? Uh, and just kind of talking about it. and I think the you know the Saint Bridget is amazing and the Goddess Bridget are amazing, but by God, the woman mm. who actually achieved all the things that she achieved. I mean, even if she achieved those things today in twenty twenty three. 
mm. you know, we yeah. would be discussing her. But she did it in a time when, you know, it's such a deeply patriarchal and hierarchical society to yeah. even and get out of bed in the morning. Was <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a very important point because, you know, there, there is scholarship saying, oh, well, did she even exist? And was she just a kind of an invented figure that, uh, you know, that the early Christian church in Ireland were appropriating the, the goddess Bridget and saying, OK, well, we're making up a, a figure to to have as a saint and to explain away these things. And and it's a kind of a very patriarchal yes. way to, to view it and to, to say, oh, well, this actually isn't a real person. This is probably some man somewhere has invented oh, this exactly. story. And and as you show, well, there's there's more evidence here than for some other figures that we that we see as real. I think you totally got it right there, Patrick. Yes, I de- definitely think there it's been patriarchal attitudes and misogynistic attitudes that have continued this. Yes, that a man must have created her. But the thing about it is actually is that it would have been much easier for Kildare if they didn't have a female founder. Like they, the last thing they needed was to create a fake female founder right, for their institution. You know, and and one of the earliest sources, Cogitosis' Life of Bridget, he's kind of bending over backwards to explain, you know, why um, the founder, you know, is a woman and why that's a good thing, right? But it's very clear to me, anyway, that he's a bit uncomfortable with, and he comes across as a tiny bit uncomfortable with the current seventh-century Kildare, where he's a, you know, a monk surrounded by men but then the women are over there surrounded by women and that he you know so I it, it they definitely didn't need to, they wouldn't have just made up this fake woman um, for the sake of it you know Cogitosa stresses that she was accompanied by she needed she went to Conlade to ask him to be her priest and to be the Bishop of Kildare so actually in a lot of the early sources they're kind of explaining right well you know there was a woman and she had a man by her side as well and they would have it would have been much easier for them mm. to not have had it you know so I think that that also lends kind of credibility to um, you know, to authenticate that she, that there was a real woman who founded the Church of Kildare. Kildare became one of the most powerful institutions in Ireland. And that woman's name may as well have been Bridget as any other. Everyone tells us it's Bridget. There's no reason to say she wasn't called Bridget. Um, you know, and it's like today, there's loads of female leaders in Ireland, you know, called Mary and, you know, loads of them over the last generation called Mary. So there could have been loads of Bridgets, you know. Yeah, Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, uh, so... When we, depending on your own faith and beliefs, you might believe in the miracles and the idea of the cloak stretching out so that that's the territory. But uh, even if you don't believe that, there is still the real person who is founding this this monastery, who is uh, this leader, who is this very significant, important figure. Yeah, exactly. So I think those kind of bare facts in themselves are worthy of celebrating today, along with all of the other facets of Bridget as well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of let's, you know, I bring that real woman into the you know discussion as well. And Idel, let's talk about the archaeology because when we look at that, uh, you get a very interesting and different perspective on the whole story. Yes, I suppose the way uh, I come up from a completely different angle. Although I agree very much with uh, with Neve and pick up on the Fahert, where she, the people she comes from, uh, because there is a very early old Irish poem. Uh, in the genealogies of the Fahert. And I have to say, Ireland is blessed in having these wonderful genealogies that go right back to the uh, at least the 6th century. And this old Irish poem is, you know, proclaiming the greatness of the Fahert. But in the middle of it, it says, and we will have this splendid progeny, this great woman, this other Mary, which is very interesting that she is so called. And... So this is something that they're celebrating. And as Niamh said, the Fothert go from around Crohan Hill uh, right over to the Hill of Allen uh, across the Curra. And this is where the archaeology comes in. Because I think if we just take Kildare, why Kildare? Um, Kildare is part of the Curra, which is this amazing archaeological landscape full of burial sites, full of linear earthworks, uh, And the other thing is that it is also uh, a place that even though it has Neolithic, Bronze Age, Iron Age, it is still functioning as a burial place in the 5th to 6th centuries. So what I am beginning to see is that the Fothert, not only are they protecting Leinster, but they're also custodians of this landscape. So all the different branches of the Fothert 
are in charge of Crohan Hill. And if we think of the bog body Crohan Man, that's where it comes from. Kildare, uh, the Hill of Allen and Knockalling. So they already are into into the religious, uh, they are religious custodians. And how I see Brigid now uh, marrying the two, the archaeology and the early Irish texts, and also cogitosis, because people have missed one certain lady in the life of Bridget, a woman called Dar Luchduch. And Dar Luchduch, um, there are two episodes of her in the what they call the Vita Prima, the first life of Bridget. Uh, one, she's sleeping with Bridget. She has passion for a man. Uh, Bridget lets her go to begin to have a tryst with say man but suddenly old poor old Darlochta puts her feet in her clogs and they're full of coal burning coals so she gets the message and hops back into bed and Bridget in the morning says what happened to your feet you know Uh, and heals her but more importantly uh, at the very end when Bridget is dying Darlochta comes and says I want to die with you and Bridget said no 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 Uh, but you will die in years time and it'll be on the, you, we'll have the same feast day. The name Dar Luchdach means the daughter or devotee of Luchid, who is a manifestation of the great god Luch. So I suspect that Kildare and the Fothert had some sort of, I don't know what we call it, sanctuary, sacred place, ritual place, devoted to Luch. Mm-hmm. And then that Brigid, the Christian woman, takes that over and like a lot of late antique female foundations uh, it's under the authority of a bishop with this great abbess and that is why so many of the abbesses of Kildare are of the Fothert. They keep their hand in uh, to the now Christian foundation. So I think it's a very different story altogether and we should think of uh, Brigid in the fifth century when Christianity was seeping into Ireland and particularly into Leinster uh, so that it's even more complex but that the archaeology is one of the keys to understanding the original story. So I've just complicated it all even <laughs> more. But in an absolutely brilliant way, well tonight we are debating the life, the legends and the legacy of St. Bridget. This is our bank holiday weekend show and uh, it's going to be a big uh, a big one I think for a lot of people in the country because the fact that uh, we finally have a national public holiday uh, in honour of a woman and uh, some brilliant uh, campaigning leading uh, to this uh, great occasion tomorrow. Well, we're going to take a quick break now now, when we continue on talking history, we look at some of the accounts of the life of St. Bridget. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we discuss the life, the legend and the legacy of St. Bridget on this, the bank holiday weekend where we're going to have our bank holiday, public holiday tomorrow named in honour of St. Bridget. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mary Condren, Dr. Edel Brannock, Dr. Neve Witterly and Laura Murphy and also to be joined now by Arika Roberts who's a postgraduate research student in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Reading and who has written on gendered womb healing, malevolence magic and spiritual medicine in the early medieval lives of St. Bridget. Well, Mary, let's maybe talk about the life of Bridget and these different accounts, because it is fascinating the way we do have, you know, stories that are, I think, part of the the imagery of Bridget, part of the iconography, the, the crosses that children make uh, and that go up in houses, the story of the cloak, the other ones you've mentioned that there is, I suppose there's elements of legend there, but there's also elements of the religious belief and feeling at the time. Um, yes, there, there is. But the, the other part of the Bridget traditions are, is, uh, are the social implications. And... Um, you know, one of my favorite stories from the life of Bridget was the, the story of when her father wanted to um, get rid of her because um, to sell her off to the king when, um, because she kept giving things away. She had, you know, she had a, um, a, a compulsion to be generous to, to the poor. So he, Dubtak, finally said, I can't bear this anymore. I'll sell her to the king. So off he went into the king and Bridget was left in the chariot on her own, and um, he went in thinking this was a done deal. But a beggar came along, and he hungry and poor and disheveled, 
And so Bridget gave the beggar her father's sword in order that he could sell it and get some food to eat. And so the two men came out of the palace and came over to Bridget and the father says, where's my sword? And she says, well, I just gave it to the beggar. Couldn't, you know, I can't help myself. And that meant that the arrangement that they had made about selling Bridget to the king was invalid. The king turned around to Dovetak and he said, listen, this woman is a troublesome woman. She can neither be bought nor sold. And I think that that epithet, you know, Bridget can neither be bought nor sold, is hugely important because the, the whole notion of being a virgin is not, anti, is not to be anti-sex. It is to be inviolate, to have complete integrity, and to neither be bought nor sold. So that's my favorite story um, in the, uh, from a social perspective in the lives of Bridget. Neve, when did the cross become associated and the, the idea of St. Bridget's crosses? Is that back in the early accounts or is that a later invention? That's a much later invention. I think, you know, what was interesting, what, what Mary was saying there about the social you know, side of things and the lives, what we do get in the, the early lives in these hagiographical texts is an insight into how the society functioned at the time. And we get that really well in the lives of Bridget. I think because she's a woman, She's really portrayed as a part of the community and a part of the landscape. So you get lots of miracles that put her in a place where she's out minding her flock of sheep. Um, You know, the next day she's preventing a war between two um, warring sides in the area. The next day she's dealing with a dog who stole a bit of bacon. She's dealing with a mischievous boy. She's kind of part of the community. She's one of the people um, and of that really deeply agricultural society at the time. So it's giving us insights into that society. A lot of dairying miracles. You know, she turns water into beer, which I love, um, you know, because we didn't have a lot of vineyards in early Mm -hmm. medieval Ireland, same as now. Um, You know, and she's portrayed as this Christ-like figure, but also, as Adele said earlier, as Mary of the Irish. So she, even in her earliest stories, there's something in there for everyone. She is something to everyone and she is very much part of this hierarchical and patriarchal society where women didn't have. I think I think it's really important to stress that in this world, the early Irish law, which kind of subsequently people refer to it kind of as this Brehan law, but really it's just, it's, it's Irish law um, at the time. Women had very limited legal capacity and they were explicitly expressed as worth half their, the, you know, the worth of their closest male relative. Uh, and Bridget functioned within the society and that comes through in her lives as well. So, you know, we it, we have to be careful and not paint medieval Ireland or the, you know, the so-called terms like Celtic Ireland as this like bastion of, you know, feminism and, you know, a place where women were able to achieve a lot more than they can now because it was exactly the opposite, you know. Um, and... It was it was very difficult. Women were, you know, kind of lower class citizens. Um, but also you had you had lots of kings and you had slaves. OK, and you had everything in between. Uh, it was a very structured society. And one of the things that people kind of bring up about Bridget to me lately is, oh, you know, that about the church. OK, and the, you obviously we, there are a lot of problems. The church is deeply problematic in a lot of ways in history. However, I think what we see from Bridget, right, is that the church offered one of the only outlets where women could perform any kind of free agency, such as it was even then, okay? But at least they were able to receive an education. They were able to live in a community of women and they were able to have some autonomy over their lives. You know, the the ruler of an a institution like Kildare, the, the abbess, she had, you know, she would have been the most powerful woman in Ireland at any given time in medieval history. But I think it's important to show that, or to say that Bridget, so she found her outlet in the church, that was where she could find it at that time. I think if she was around today, it probably would have been in, you know, maybe in a different forum. But it was the, the church was offering that outlet to women at the time. So I just think it's important to remember that medieval Ireland was a really difficult place, especially for women, um, especially for the poor and the needy. And Bridget is portrayed as being a woman, you know, for all these people, you know, for helping mm. the disenfranchised, but also 
you know, she's able to hold her own with kings and stuff as well. And I think it's important, um, you know, we had a history in Ireland before uh, the birth of Christ and it was an oral culture for, for thousands of years and it was a very sophisticated culture. All we have to do is look at the, the sophistication of Newgrange and how it aligns to astronomy and, and, and how, you know, the, our ancients developed a calendar and, and built this feat of engineering 5,000 years ago. So even though there's not, we don't have much written down from that time, it's still very important to put our consciousness back onto Ireland and the society of that time. And what we do know, and, and Mary Condren has, has written about this as well, is that poets had a central role in, in Irish society at this time. Um, they were they were as important or next to important to the king um, because of their ability to to divine higher truth and wisdom and inform the king so he could lead in right relationship with the land and the people. And the poets of Ireland got their power from the goddess Bridget. Uh, this, this power of imbus ferocne, it's an ancient Irish word for divine inspiration or illuminated inspiration. And that was the gift of the goddess. So so if we look at the feminine coming in, not not as a, as a woman per se, but as a as an archetypal energy that the poets used to to create this tradition of poetry. And you spoke about W.B. Yeats at the start of, of this and, and his connection to Irish mysticism. It was Imbus Ferocene that the poets of Ireland have been drawing for from for millennia. And I think it's high time now that we remembered and we revived that. And I think it's interesting as well that St. Patrick is said to have banned two of our practices for Imbus Ferocene. So the poets had three things called the three illuminations of the poet. And they were practices that the poets used to harness divine inspiration. But St. Patrick came and he banished two of those practices. So I like to make the connection. And Mary might speak to this as well. Was it the snakes he banished or was it the, the serpentine wisdom of the Druids and the divine feminine? That's the question. Poor old Patrick. <laughs> yes, and, 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 and Laura, in terms of the, those layers again, the fact that we have the, the Feast of Imbolc and, you know, springtime and rebirth and all of that, the fact that that's connected with Bridget and the feast day is the same on the 1st of February, that uh, is that a happy coincidence or coming together or it's a deliberate kind of uh, knitting together of the different traditions and stories? I think it's a deliberate knitting together, you know, for, for, for the church to properly embed in Ireland, they needed to to overlay their dogma onto the existing um, way that we lived in Ireland, which was in harmony with nature. In, you know, our, our ancients followed the wheel of the year. Um, Imbolc comes from the word in the belly, you know, and it's it, it points to that uh space of conception and space of creation from the dark of Samhain and, and winter and Bridget, you know, her archetype or her birthday falls right on that liminal space between the darkness and the light and and I think, it, you know, Christmas overlays on winter solstice and we have the birth of Angus. We had our own immaculate conception that took place in Newgrange uh, on the 21st of December. Then, you know, we had the birth of Christ on the 25th of December. So I think um, there is, there is, I'm not sorry that that, that's happened because it meant that throughout the 2000 years of, of the Catholic Church in Ireland, we were aligned with the cycle of nature. There was just a lot probably that was taken out of our consciousness. But given where we are with the planet now, we need to come back into connection with nature and live in harmony with the cycles again. And Erica, your work looking at uh, some of the early lives of Bridget and looking at this idea of malevolent magic, the spiritual medicine, uh, what uh, some scholars have termed abortion miracles even which will be a kind of a a, a jarring thing for uh, I think listeners to, to hear that how did these how did these elements appear in some of these early stories I think that there's the the term of abortion and miracles has really been differentiated by looking at this concept of maleficium which is this Latin word that roughly translates to malevolent magic and was sometimes associated with abortion and abortive work. And with the medieval Irish penitentials, they hold that the penance for nuns who committed maleficium was less time than the penance for childbirth. And so I think that what I argue is that these laws display a society where certain women had reproductive choices 
exerted agency and in choosing to abort, the penance was relatively minor. And I think that, that you can contrast the way in which ordinary women and healers were negatively associated with maleficium, but female saints, and specifically Bridget, St. Bridget, were celebrated for the way in which they were able to restore women to virginal states through their abortionist work. And in medieval Ireland, if a woman aided another woman in reproductive medicine, it was maleficium. But if a female saint, such as St. Bridget, aided another woman in reproductive medicine with the intent of restoring virginity and really avoiding illegitimacy, then it's seen as this miracle of God. And so this ruling sort of assumes that more of a spiritual conception of virginity that um, I think is, you know, very, it is very empowering. It does seem very jarring to sort of look at it as an abortion miracle, but it also, I think, sort of problematizes this view that we have as St. Bridget continuing to be this polemic figure in Ireland and even beyond. In many ways, she's transcended these roles, uh, even as just being someone who's like performing necessarily an abortion miracle. She's really a, a woman who's acting with authority and performing spiritual medicine on other women and being seen as someone who is acts without authority in a way that's that's really about healing someone and restoring these these women to spiritual virginity which i think reinforces the idea of how much value is put on chastity and purity in yes. in the, in the yes. early church and in in this early Irish society yes and i think it's also it it really does i think expose sort of the own historiosity perhaps of this dichotomy that we have of looking at things perhaps through pro-life or pro-choice and really instead I think shows that a lot of our ideas about modern abortion as a term don't really allow room perhaps for other ways of classifying or understanding reproductive health and spiritual medicine that you know would have existed in the seventh century when Cogatosis is writing this about St. Bridget. Which Laura really brings home the idea of her as being very much a, as someone who speaks to us in the 21st century, very much a, a modern icon, a modern figure. And that you were talking about the planet and uh, yeah. what we have to do there, that this is this is not uh, 1000, you know, 400 uh, year old story. This is actually a story for today and now. Mm, it is. And, and, and it relates to the mother and, and baby home situation as well. Two years ago, I wrote an open letter to the Taoiseach. Um, at the time, just after his apology, and um, I expressed how, as a, as a second generation mother and baby home survivor, I didn't agree that society was to blame for for the atrocities that it was it was church and state collusion um, that allowed for abuses on women and children to happen in Ireland, and and as as part of that letter, I called for Bridget's Day to be um, a national holiday because it was obliteration of the feminine from our consciousness that, that allowed atrocities like this to happen. And when the mother and baby home system was set up, that was in 1922. That was at the same point that our constitution was written by Eamon de Valera and Archbishop John you know, McQuaid, uh, that was written with the Catholic Church basically uh, dictating. And we had the clause 41.2 in it that said a woman's place is in the home. So at the time where women and children were basically written out of the constitution, Institution. That was the same time that the mother and baby home system was set up in Ireland. So where Bridget comes into relevance is because it's symbolically, it's, it's, it's bringing back in the feminine into our consciousness in a way that we can relate to her values of equality, justice, truth and healing. The question I think in relation to, you know, Imbolc and, um, and Bridget is that Lasser, another woman who is in Duhallow and whose um, churches are evident all over Ireland also, um, it is said that she, not in Duhallow, but in, in, in Finglas, Lasser in Finglas gave her church to Bridget. Now, Lasser means light woman, and light woman means midwife. And so the ceremonies of Imbolc are very different, and the rituals of them are very different from those of what I call the religions of empire. They are all based not on redemption, which is, um, you know, the shedding of blood and sacrifice and war. They're based on regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we regenerate ourselves, our bodies? How do we regenerate our, our societies? And how do we 
you know, help to regenerate the, the cosmos, or at least not mess, make, make it more of a mess of it than we are at the moment. And, you know, when I saw the Patriarch of Russia um, blessing young men as they went out to be cannon fodder for the Russian Empire and promising them eternal life, that to me is, is almost like a theological um, motif that is running through all of our societies at the moment and geared up through the war and the perpetual threat of war. And, you know, one of Bridget's um, abbesses, or the, the, the famous thing, they were, they were called, literally, the abbesses were called those who turned back the streams of war. Um, and if we can begin to develop a spirituality or a theology or an ideology, depending what you like, um, of regeneration rather than redemption, I think we will be, we will, you know, Bridget will make a massive contribution to the social imaginary mm. of the political world in which we live. I think that's a very powerful point. And Adele, you're almost seeing uh, Bridget as being an antidote to many of these evils in the world. I suppose so. And you see it in the difference between the lives of Bridget and the lives of Patrick. Uh, I take our friends, the so-called Druids. Um, In Bridget, obviously, she's fostered to a Druid um, who is very kind to her understands, you know, about unclean and clean foods that she can and cannot eat. In the lives of Patrick, uh, druids are turned into stone and hail and all the rest of it. But that, I think, reflects what I've been saying, that we have to look at these lives in their own contexts so that probably the life of Bridget is showing the time of conversion when Druids, obviously, or whatever we call them, custodians of the earlier religion, uh, were still in operation. But they are as well in that 7th century period when the lives are being written. And why the uh, hagiographers, or those who are writing the saints' lives of Patrick, are very anti-Druid is because they're still probably in the courts of kings and they don't want them. They want them out and gone, you know. But the other thing I would say, there are a few other things about uh, Bridget. First of all, Imbolc. Uh, Yes, Imbolc uh, existed and uh, yes, her feast day lands on it. But we have to always remember that the 2nd of February is Candlemas, which is a feast of the Virgin Mary. And I think the two were allied together and you have that whole Mary uh, imagery associated with Bridget. So we have to go back to that period and understand why. And... The other thing I would say is that we're always also forgetting all the dedications to St. Bridget uh, from here in Ireland, of which there are Kilbreeders or Kilbrides through to Scotland, St. Brides in Chester, in London, Brideswell, uh, across the continent. And that we have to understand uh, in those um, place names and dedications, you have... Um, St. Bridget being taken on by different uh, regions and cultures uh, throughout Europe. So, for example, the Vikings, for example, had foundations to St. Bridget. Hence, we have a St. Bridget's in Dublin. We have one in Chester. Very, very early on, um, Kildare becomes or has uh, outliers in places like uh, Foss and Nivelle in Belgium, Cologne and so on. Hence, we have dedications all around Germany. So she becomes a transnational saint in a sense. And it's not necessarily because there was a transnational goddess. It's because the cult spread very quickly uh, all around Europe. Britain and Europe. And did the British Wells tie into that as well, the idea that they would cure sterility and things like that? Well, you have that. And I would say about her miracles in the uh, lives, it's very much reflecting a woman's economy at the time. Neve explained about, you know, the dire uh, legal uh, standing or position of women in Ireland. But they had specific um, tasks in the economy which would have been to do with dairying, you know, milking, making butter and so on, weaving as well. And there's a lovely uh, story, I think it's in the Vita Prima again, where uh, Bridget lands on a poor woman and all the woman has is her cow and her calf and her loom. And she kills the calf to feed Bridget and she throws the loom on the fire to have a fire to roast it. And in the morning, of course, the calf is back and the loom is back there. That is a very powerful reflection of 
of the power of women in that kind of society. They were weaving the cloth, they were milking the cows and, you know, minding the sheep. So it's it's not all gloom and doom. <laughs> um, it reflects the economy of women. Very good. Well, tonight we are talking about the life of St. Bridget. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll explore the legacy of St. Bridget and what people are planning to do on this bank holiday tomorrow. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, legends and legacy of St. Bridget. Our panel of experts, Dr. Mary Condren of Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Edel Brannock of the School of History at UCC, Dr. Neve Witterly of Maynooth University, Laura Murphy, the poet in residence at Her Story. And we were also there talking to Arika Roberts of the Department of Archaeology at the University of Reading. Uh, Laura, it's on us now tomorrow, this first uh, public holiday. Uh, how are you going to celebrate it? What are you going to do? What's what's a meaningful way of us, uh, I suppose, remembering Bridget, remembering what Bridget represents? For me, it's it's the creative force. It's the imbus ferocity. It's the illuminated inspiration. So if we think of that wonderful light coming into the, the, the land and, and the flowers starting to bloom, we can harness that energy of creativity and of growth. And I will be, will be sitting down uh, out in nature, beside a river, at a well, on the land, connecting in with the energies of Bridget in bulk and I will hopefully write a poem but it could look like a, a, a song it could be a piece of art it could be a haiku but if you want to connect in with your own inner creativity there's no better time than than in bulk and, and Bridget's day and specifically her first national holiday and to 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 give gratitude I'll probably write a poem of gratitude and Eve, it's it's extraordinary that it took so long for her to get, I suppose, this this public holiday. Although I suppose Bridget herself was always always had a special position maybe in Ireland that uh, even if there wasn't the official recognition, uh, she was still an important part of our story. Yeah, and do you know what to me actually the most important thing, given my job as a medieval historian, it's how important early Irish medieval history is. Mm-hmm. Um, how important early medieval history is to everyone, but especially in Ireland. It's kind of our defining epoch in our history. You know, when we sell ourselves as the Isle of Saints and Scholars, mm-hmm. and we were the Isle of Saints and Scholars and we're rightly famous for it. Um, and I'm working hard to try and kind of communicate that to people and, you know, doing my daily work, but it's really underappreciated in kind of academia and the Irish university system, I have to say. It's very hard to get a job um, as a medieval historian and everybody loves hearing about it. And I think this new public holiday shows, again, we've taken a medieval woman, you know, and and an Irish saint from this period. Mm. And we've chosen as a country to honour her for our public holiday. So I think, again, it shows the importance of understanding and appreciating uh, the study of this period in our history. Yes. And, and and just on to support the point you make about uh, universities and, and the public you know valuing this kind of work I think there's too much of a focus on the 20th century oh, and the recent and <laughs> uh, and the decade of centenaries but actually you can't understand anything that happened in, oh. in Ireland in the 20th century or, or the Ireland of the 21st century unless you go back and back to the 19th century which is distant history for some 18th century but back to the Fifth century in Bridget, and as as your work on this has shown, it is very much topical. Mm-hmm. It is very much alive. It is very much about who we are and and what how we li- how we became a country, how we became a society, our politics, our relations with men and women, with children. That it's all uh, it's it's, it's so our formative. story. Yeah, and it's just that period is so formative in how you know kind of we live our lives today. And it's funny because you mentioned the nineteenth century because a lot of idea our ideas of medieval Ireland were actually framed by mostly men, you know, in the 19th century and how we wanted to define ourselves in opposition to Great Britain and, you know, and to, to England, that kind of thing. So it's really important to get back to, I, I have people constantly repeating to me, you know, it was a great time for women, you know, before, you know, before those bad, you know, Anglo-Normans came over and all this kind of thing. Didn't we have a beautiful society? No, we didn't. <laughs> um, but the thing is that we need to understand that. So in order for us to go forward from 2023 onwards, we need to have a good hard look at our real history before, you know, all the, this kind of later um, early modern and modern history and that you know we can't be harking back to the, a so-called glorious time uh, you know in our past that didn't necessarily exist 
No, absolutely brilliant. So Mary, what's the legacy for you? Because I think I'm t- definitely taking from this that there is important messages for us today for uh, who we are, from where we came from. But I think it's all wrapped into these different layers uh, of the imagery and the iconography of Bridget. Absolutely. And can I just say that, you know, as I said, Women's Spirit has been doing the embark ceremonies now for 30 years, but we've also branched out into looking at Bridget at Bialtana, Bridget at Lunasa, and Bridget in the, uh, at Samhain. They're the, the different faces of Bridget. Um, and I think now that we, you know, Imbolc has been made a public holiday, which is absolutely brilliant, we also need to include the other three festivals and explore the other images of Bridget, like Bree Brehock, who was a judge, Bree Bruegge, who was maybe a hospitaller or responsible for distributing the goods of the tribe, and Bree Ambui, we don't really know very much about, but I think she was a bit of an outlaw, a bit of a social reformer. Um, and I think we need to look at those aspects of Bridget also, uh, even though there's only very what we call trace hauntings of them in the written literature. But we, we need to know a lot more about them. So that's how I'll be celebrating Bridget's Day this, this year, <laughs> continuing to... Um, forage out what we can find. And you've done such brilliant work in making sure that uh, we understand uh, who Bridget was and indeed that we understand uh, women, uh, religion and power in uh, Celtic Ireland. Uh, Idel, what about for you? Uh, well, first of all, I completely agree with Niamh and I would add that not only should we know about Bridget and about medieval Ireland, but we have some of the most wonderful sources right back to an early period that nobody else in Europe has and huge amount of material. But for me, first of all, the legacy. I hope people begin to call their daughters and so <laughs> yes. on Breed and uh, Bridget. Uh, I have a sister, Breed, and my daughter is Sarah Breed. So uh, I, the revival of the name. Yeah. And uh, for myself, I always associate it with the, there's a hymn in Irish called Govan Malta Breed on Vanina Heron. Uh, so I always sing that on uh, Bridget's Day. Okay, well, my thanks to my absolutely brilliant panel of experts for uh, sharing their insights, their expertise and their uh, stories about uh, St. Bridget. My thanks to Dr. Mary Condren of the Centre for Gender and Women's Studies at Trinity College Dublin, Dr. Edel Brannock of UCC, Dr. Neve Witcherly of the Department of Early Irish and Beneath University, Laura Murphy, the poet in residence at Her Story, and we are also talking to Arika Roberts, who's completing a PhD in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Reading. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, to Shannon Murphy, who's joining us on research, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.